Hey guys, welcome back to VS Energy's Commissioning Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and today we have on with us Mark Sankey and Nick Taliska. In today's podcast, we will be discussing the commissioning process. So I think a great place to start with this episode is the definition of commissioning. And I dove into it and uh, looked it up, and it, it looks like commissioning, right, if, if you guys agree, is the process of planning documenting, scheduling, testing, adjusting, verifying, and training to provide a facility that operates as a fully functional system per the owner's project requirements. That's a good one, but is there a simpler definition we can all agree on? And I'm just asking that, Mark. In my mind, this is like anything else. It's like measurement and verification. It's like you know raising a child. Basically, you cannot leave things to themselves or they disintegrate to maximum disorder. So the commissioning process is the maintenance of a responsible entity to assure that the translation process from the owner's project requirements to an operating building is fulfilled in a 100% quality and compliant process. I, I don't know that you can say it easier because in my mind, the, it is a process. You always have to plan. You always have to document, schedule, test, adjust, verify, train. You could cut all that stuff out. It, it's basically the process to provide a facility that operates as fully functional system per the owner's project requirements. I can't argue with any of that. So there are key words in there. One being, uh, well, system, it's a systematic process too. Right, it's not something that gets recreated every time you do it. There is a, a level of, obviously, a, a verification against what was designed, and there's also this part of intent and what is the, the project requirements. I agree completely with both of you guys. That definition actually, I believe, came from the ASHRAE 2005 guideline. So. But that's a great starting point too, because that really is, that's, that is the, would you call it the gold standard to follow for commissioning? Well, it is, but at the same time, I will, as much as I love ASHRAE, they have a propensity for verbosity that goes unmatched in the HVAC community. Agreed. So I'm always looking to simplify things so I can understand them. Right. No, and I think you guys did a good job simplifying that commissioning definition. Since we're on the subject, what is the ASHRAE 2005 guideline and why is it so important? The ASHRAE 2005 guideline was really the first guideline that emerged on scene to tr to attempt to define, provide guidelines for the commissioning process. And, you know, it's it was it was incepted at the time that Six Sigma was, you know, big on the scene and really follows the standard Six Sigma quality control process. If you look right in the right in the guideline, there's a flow chart that very much replicates a Six Sigma quality process. Okay, we're going to document it, then we'll prove that it works, then we'll document that it works, and then we'll go back and check again. And that cycle is set up for not just the construction period, but the life of the building. Right. Now, everybody has a definition for commissioning, whether it's the AEE, NEBS, SMACNA, 
all those entities have developed theirs uh, their own standards and now there's the AABC even the GBC is put in derivatives for advanced commissioning etc uh, for lead certification so I, I did kind of want to ask about that, Mark, and I figured you would know the, the other standards that are out there and how this new ASHRAE standard is finding its way into uh, the different markets out there. And like I said, with my work in the, in the federal market, we obviously, they, they referenced uh, the, the FEMP commissioning guidelines. And, uh, but I know there is some difference here with the ASHRAE and what they require. And I was kind of interested in your perspective and how this is different maybe than what has preceded it in the past. Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure, not definitely sure. The 2005 standard was written in 2005. So approved, I'm looking at it right now, March 11, 2005. And the FEMP standard came along, I believe, after the uh, 2005 standard, and then uh, the Texas A&M standard for continuous commissioning followed that sometime in 2009. And, and it's interesting because ASHRAE is typically considered a standards uh, organization, but the ASHRAE 2005 document is a guideline. It's not a standard. So there is nothing that says you must do this. There, you know, it's a 100% a guideline that says, you know, from the purpose to the scope and design phase, construction, occupancy, it's recommendations, not necessarily, oh, if you skip this step, you know, your building is not commissioned properly. I think SMACNA and NEBS are kind of the same thing. You know, SMACNA obviously more towards the air side and commissioning, you know, leakage and those kinds of things and NEBS the same way, flow rates and leakage. But the AABC, a newer entity, and I don't know how long they've been around, five, six years or whatever, is very prescriptive in terms of the processes and testing methods, etc. And it goes all the way down to just like the IPMVP does confidence intervals based on the statistical analysis of the test data, et cetera, which is probably a good thing. But in my mind, before we get there, if we can at least get people to follow a guideline, then we can start to put some statistical validity in place once that happens. But right now, like I said in the last podcast, we get calls all the time where the building is up and running and they want to, they want somebody to come in and commission it. Well, Clearly, they didn't follow any guideline or any process that's been published for commissioning. No, agreed. And, and the guidelines, you know, do give you flexibility, obviously, to meet each project's needs. And the same with FEMP, the Federal Energy Management Program, you know, the, the, their guidelines as well. And same with the M&V, to be honest. So, but still, that's that's the starting point that we're working from. So, speaking of starting points, then what in, you know, obviously it's outlined very clearly in ASHRAE 2005, that guideline, when does the commissioning, for the listeners, when does the commissioning process start in a project? Well, it, it, it is interesting because in the, in the guideline document, there is a whole section on what entities, owner, commissioning authority, design contractor, et cetera, is engaged at what 
part of the pre-design and construction schedules and at the onset according to the ASHRAE guideline it's only the commissioning entity and the building owners or you know, representatives of the building owners that collaborate to construct the owner's pro project requirement document basically through the, you know, the whiteboard process where okay what does this building need to do and it starts with keep us warm keep us cool and goes through a potentially a two-day process where it gets very granular in terms of you know, what the ventilation rates might be what what they expect to do for renewable energy for energy recovery water usage water conservation all those things so that at the end you can write a document that states exactly how the building must perform and that gets handed over to the architectural and engineering entities for design. Mark, we're talking about the owner's project requirements at this point getting formalized and we're in the pre-design phase. That's correct. Okay. Can we talk a little bit about, you know, we have this, it's a singular possessive word here, owner's project requirements, but this obviously involves multiple stakeholders. Correct. So can you give us a little bit from your experience in, in this pre-design phase? Who typically would be involved on the owner's side in, in defining these project requirements? So that typically is a management group, which may include, uh, let's just say we're building a office building that may include landmark tenants that will have occupancy of two floors of seven, for instance. So it may include, number one, the owners of the building, number two, major tenants. It will probably include maintenance and operations staff or outsourced maintenance and operations personnel. And it'll include financial entities. So who's responsible for number one, paying for the building, and number two, paying for operations costs. And those folks often have competing objectives. You know, the, the first cost may drive the, the construction quality, which impacts operating costs negatively on the downside. The maintenance and operations people, you know, they want redundancy for everything. Can't always afford that. So there's some give and take and uh, quite a bit of negotiation before that owner uh, project requirement document is actually published. We work for a wide range of clients and some require multiple redundancies for critical equipment. Some require no redundancies based on, you know, the criticality of the building, criticality of the environment, etc. Unfortunately, it's one of the my, my least favorite parts of the job is to actually go through the OPR construction in, in the process that ASHRAE suggests because it, it is basically herding cats. Everybody gets a say, you know, there's, there's not supposed to be any hierarchy of any one need supersedes another, but it is a very challenging process. Well, and that's what's interesting to me, Mark, about the ASHRAE standard here that we're talking about, you know, that outline for the pre-design phase is very, you know, small, you know, as far as quantity of text there, but like you said, some very uh, interesting points about 
you know, having everybody have their voice. And, and I think that's part of the challenge of a commissioning authority at that point is to uh, try to have everybody involved that should be a part of it at that required, I guess, stage in the project. And like you said, there are, and not everybody's going to get all of their requirements, but that seems to be a, a necessary challenge at that point where also a point where things can go off track if this step is not done. Yeah, it certainly can. And, you know, we've been on many projects where we're engaged once the project is awarded, for instance, which is still, it's typically early in the project, but it's better than once construction is done. And we ask to see the owner's project requirement document, and there's not one. That's a red flag. So that usually requires us to sit down with owners and you know, the high level stakeholders to draft up an OPR post, potentially post bid. Okay, this is what we signed on for. This is what we plan to build. Does it make sense? And at that point, you, you kind of do a, a, you know, a SWAT hit list and go through the drawings and go through the, and make sure that there's no gross emissions, no gross items that are on the OPR that cannot be fulfilled by the the building as drawn as as planned and times like that too sometimes the owner these terms like their their project requirements are completely foreign terms to them and ideas and a basis of design and as you're going through that process sometimes it can be uh very illuminating on how this would have been beneficial months before perhaps years before right how often do you find owners or stakeholders that don't, they don't know what they want, if that makes sense, you know, for control tolerances or, or anything? Well, Clayton, we just worked on a job where once the project was up and running, they wanted plus or minus half a degree of temperature range. And in their OPR document, they said plus or minus four. So, I mean, no, that's a great example. Yeah. Um, so, but, but once they decided, once they saw what the systems could do, well, then they want plus or minus a half. I, I mean, and, and it's hard to, and, and it wasn't even our OPR document. It was written by somebody else, but they had to pull that document, document out and say, Hey, wait a minute, guys, we can, if we can maintain plus or minus one. We're doing great. Plus or minus a half is exponentially better but you signed up for plus or minus four so i mean it, that's just how it goes that, that opr is it, it's you know construction 101 that becomes the overriding document for everything so when somebody gets selective memory or their imagination takes over and they say well this is what we thought we were getting you can refer to that opr and it becomes the guideline that people say here's what we are building you know, I'm still surprised sometimes in these larger projects that you, know, you get down towards the end and, and a lot of the people involved, they almost forget what the, the purpose of the project was. And, you know, I understand they all have their complicated pieces they're working on too, but in most of the projects I work on, right, it's all based on, it's a financial deal. It's all based on the dollar savings, which means it's all based on the energy savings, water savings, resource savings. So 
that has to be focused throughout the whole project. And again, the project goes on for 18, 24 months, but it's really not an excuse that we should all still be focused on what is the purpose of this. I mean, the project, let alone the contract vehicle we're using to get this the work done. And if you don't keep focused on really what is the solution that we're we're trying to affect here, then you know a lot of things can go wrong along the way. Nick, it's interesting because you know you've been involved in the measurement and verification side so extensively, and we've been involved in the ESPC business peripherally, usually only on the front end during investment grade audits, and then sometimes during the project, and then once in a while post the project if you know things go south and they need a forensic expert. But you know what you said is absolutely true that if the ESCOs basically took the time to collaboratively develop an OPR at the beginning of the project that carried through and said, okay, you, Mr. Owner, sure, you want energy savings, but by and large, the, the most government entities are not necessarily motivated to reduce costs, but basically reduce costs to return that money into facility infrastructure, either improved lighting, new chillers, blah, blah, blah. And the the incentive should be, the OPR document would basically read, you know, we want to upgrade mechanical equipment to be, you know, at this efficiency and have a life cycle of this amount of, you know, X many years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there can't be any of the argument at the end, well, you know, why didn't we do this? Well, because it wasn't in our project requirements. That's all there is to it. And when I think of, you know, I look at the words owner's project requirements, and it's easy to think of, you know, perhaps a smaller site or project, but, you know, you get into these larger projects that you work on, as you know, that, you know, there's not just one owner and these, the OPR is a way of, I don't know, kind of caring, like this is what everybody agreed at one point, you know, was the aggregate goal of this project. And it's not a single statement, obviously, but many different target objectives. And and the more clearly defined it is, I mean, the best defined problems get the best solutions just all day long. So, and it, it comes down to putting the work in up front too. And when you're starting out this project, yeah, this may seem sometimes, I wonder sometimes that this is skipped because it seems like self-evident. Like, of course we know, you know, what our requirements are. That's why we're starting to do this project, but the formalization of it cannot be understated. Well, we just got done talking about it in our other podcasts about you, you leave things open for interpretation and it can uh, cause problems. Oh, certainly. I mean, that's a great point. The, the clarity that's needed to not only, you know, again, I see this a lot with the expectations that were, you know, sometimes vaguely written and it left it up for interpretation. And, you know, everybody's got their biases. So the owner is going to interpret it, these statements to their benefit and what they expect. Right. Sometimes the, you know, other companies may leave that a little bit open, but again, it never really works out well for anybody. Everybody comes away hurting a little bit and you never get the, the quality of the project that everybody wanted. Well, and and that's true. And especially in the ESPC world, 
love the business, uh, always have, but the ESPC world is a gigantic negotiation, gigantic. So it, it's all, you know, I, I can give up this for that on both sides. And in that kind of negotiation that is so complex and so long-term, the, the number one rule is document everything. So all that does is avoid conflicts down the road. And, and we were actually on a project, a uh, major health system in downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm going to take a tangential dive here. So a pretty good-sized ESCO from out of state came into town. Uh, we can do all this work. So there was steam trap work. There were variable speed drives. There were air handling unit changes, control systems upgrade, etc 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 and the health system basically stopped paying them because they were not realizing any cost avoidance so now I'm on the uh, and I I was on the team that represented the health system against the ESCO and I was there subject matter experts so we got their scope of work we got them all the contract documents and you know when you when you are in discovery and you ask for documents you don't get document you get boxes and boxes and boxes of documents from which i pieced together what their uh, scope of work was what their measurement and verification methodology was etc etc and after a couple of weeks of sifting through documents i spent a couple of weeks on the job and found out that they only did about half the work, no work on the air handling equipment. They upgraded, not replaced the control system. There was no commissioning. But when, and the M&V was flawed, and it, their, their subject matter expert was actually one of the authors of the IPMVP, IPMVP, and he had made such basic errors that he, he kind of gave up. But anyway, the scope of work came to light, and here's the here's what you showed as your scope of work, and then came the slideshow of this was never done, this was never done, and you know, and the response was, well, we traded that for some other things. Next question: What other things? I can't remember. That was a bad day. So the the poor contractor who basically came to town looking for money because the owner terminated the contract ended up writing a check for 900 grand it was a bad day yeah it sounds like a bad day well it's one of those cases mark like you said you go into an engagement and you start off by you're not really making a lot of friends any place but you know that's not your goal you're really out there to see what well, what is what's the truth here and, and it brings up a good point because I, I don't know if this ESCO had a had a commissioning agent working for them or somebody in their organization that thought they did commissioning, but obviously when you're talking about a commissioning authority, and, and being they involved, did, they they did right. But so when we talk about a commissioning authority in a in a in a project of how you'd like to see it go, who hires that commissioning authority? The owner. Well, the guideline says the commissioning authority should not be hired by anyone involved in the project 
on the design or construction side. Right. But again, that, that does happen quite a bit, right? And like I think we were talking about in the previous episode, they're they're bundled in with the contractor services sometimes. Yeah, which is that's a checklist. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> the only thing we've we've seen um, that has worked is many times in a in a project the contractors are required to carry an allowance for commissioning and the owner assigns commissioning agents and that that works just but you know it's always clear the commissioning agent works for the owner but for funding the mechanics of funding sure they they are being paid by the contract so wrapping it back up to the owners, the OPR document. Um, as as you look at these these different phases on the ASHRAE twenty oh five guideline, one of the first thing that comes up on every one is OPR update, OPR update, OPR update. From both of your experiences, how often? What is that update, or does it change often? What? Why are we updating it through each phase? Well, I think. There may, there may especially come a time during the design phase and the design team prepares budgets that there may have to be some either relaxation or compromise with the project requirements based on budget constraints. And then going the other way, the facility may take on uh, more rigid requirements as additional processes are introduced that may require a change in the OPR. Those are just a couple examples. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. So it's not, it's nothing generally drastic. Nobody changes their mind. It's just, okay, this is what, this is what's reality. This is what our budget can afford. Maybe we can't have this stringent, whatever application. It could be as much, I mean, it could be a refinement of their initial you know, requirements, but it could be driven by you know, big change, you know, a change in design that meant new equipment or old equipment staying. And, uh, or even some of the things where, you know, they're like a Mark said, relaxation of some of their more stringent requirements or what they thought they needed. We're talking about that temperature. Yep. Variance. And then do you guys generally start generating a commissioning plan in the pre-design phase? It seems like it might be challenging to know what you're going to commission before it's decided, if that makes sense. I don't always formally develop that, but knowing that when we're the commissioning agents, there are certainly additional testing points, additional possible enhancements to the tab specification that will be required. So knowing what the pre-functional and functional tests will look like, at least in very rough form, yeah, it's important to start communicating those requirements into the mechanical and electrical and control systems design and we don't commission building commission uh, building envelopes so i'm not i can't speak to that yeah that makes sense and that that kind of rolls you into i guess what would be the the next part of the commissioning process would be the design phase and that's where you would really start to concrete or finalize your commissioning plan as the project is being just the mechanical systems are being designed that you're going to commission. Yeah. And this is where the, the basis of design starts coming in in most processes. And, and I guess the way I've always been taught about the owner's project requirements, it can be more in layman terms, 
that you know multiple stakeholders can understand but then when you get into the basis of design that can be a more a more technical document and mark do you see that still that difference playing out i do and typically the basis of design is for accompanying the design to peer review by another engineer a and e firm when that happens so it, the, the BOD is basically here's why and here's the reasoning behind, you know, we went to constant volume reheat for this precision environment versus VAV reheat. Uh, here's why we are using chilled beams, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of times I think that can help then, like Clayton asked about, refine then the owner's project requirements as they start being required to get a little more detail about why they're making these decisions. The design phase, as, as the commissioning process, obviously we start developing our commissioning plan, generate the, the basis of design. What other key elements of the commissioning process are part of the design phase in a project? I don't know about you, Nick, but I know that on projects we get involved with, I would say less than 30% go through a peer review. I don't know. That's just my, I, I can't think of a project, a project last year that had a full peer review by a cold eye engineering firm. Well, you say it's up to 30% due. Yes. Interesting. Yep. Okay. No, I wouldn't be surprised if you said less. Yeah, I, I would agree with Nick almost, it seems like, well, from my limited experience. But you know, when you talk about added costs and added value, again, and you're talking when you just reference sending out your BOD and your OPR to a, a third party, essentially, another engineering firm. BOD, OPR, and plans and specs. Now, how about this? Can you then draw any uh, conclusions based on that 30% that you're aware of that do follow that process? As, as to whether it improves the design process? Uh, yeah, I was thinking more of the quality of the project, but that's even kind of broad, you know, but. Well, it it's just like when you were a kid and your parents say, did you do your homework? And you say, yeah. And dad would say, bring it down. I want to look at it. I got to bring in my homework. I, I got to go up and scribble something down real fast. I think just the idea that if an engineering firm thinks there will be a peer review, they do a better job. Oh, I like that. I yeah, that that's a great happen. analogy. Yeah, um, but yeah. Yep, that is a great analogy. I would have never thought of it from that uh, perspective. You but... don't think about it in the homework story? Yeah, that's it's it makes it real. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes good sense. So, you know, if I were an owner, I would always say, and we'll have a peer review at 30% or at 50%, blah, blah, blah. And even if we don't, well, if they expect it, the odds are higher that they'll do a more complete uh, and higher quality job, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I'm just trying to keep moving forward in the commissioning process of a project, still being in the design phase. This is, this is the point where your pre-functional checklists would be generated and documented and then your functional testing as well. You know, I, I don't know if you guys want to elaborate any on that. I I mean, I, I think that uh, 
I mean, unfortunately, you know, a, a lot of the projects that I, I do work on, I'm not, I know the end result, right? The commissioning report. And you, you can make a lot of judgments upon or about what transpired in the previous phases based on what you get for the commissioning report. And you can then ask for the commissioning plan. And oftentimes there's not a commissioning plan that's been formalized. So a lot of these elements, you know, are missing down, I mean, to OPRs and in the basis of design. And, and again, even some with commissioning plans, the, the functional testing may a lot of times be nothing more than, you know, what, you know, what's commonly called a pre-functional checklist and, and kind of construction check sheets to make sure the system is safe and able to be started up and you know, operated, but not the, the rigor of doing the testing of is it functioning as this system was designed to and the pieces of equipment that are part of it, but also with any other integrated systems. And there seems to be a big gap there sometimes. So like it stops almost at your construction checklist you see sometimes or a lot. I don't know. I don't know how much is a percentage. Quite a bit. And this ties in with, you know, maybe there's some I guess voids that are left between this idea of when does commissioning stop and when does the measurement and verification piece mm -hmm. pick up, especially in these performance contracts. And again, most often we're not, you know, there's no third parties involved. These are, you know, from the installing contractors team, you know, their own commissioning people. And they'll have factory startup people, which is not, you know, the same as commissioning. Uh, necessary part of it, but a lot of times that that can stop. In fact, you know, I've got multiple just from the last couple of weeks about getting commissioning, you know, documentation, and it's, you know, maybe ABB's uh, drive startup reports, and they're not really telling me anything about what we said we were going to do as far as seeing if this VFD responded like we thought it would. That's crazy to think, though, because obviously. I know Mark uh, mentioned it in our last episode, you know, if, if you pass your construction checklist and, you know, everything's good for the most part, you're in good shape, but either that doesn't go into any of the control loops, uh, the tuning of that, or, you know, as a system, how everything functions. Obviously, if my temperature sensor comes in and my actuator moves when I give it a voltage, that's great, but that doesn't mean the system's going to function for anything. No, you're right. And it all involves or, you know, the complexity of the system too, you know, for a lot of pieces of equipment, you know, a, pretty much a, a construction checklist will fit the bill. But when you have things that are variable in nature and have to respond to external inputs, then yeah, it gets more complicated. And that's kind of something with, you know, when you think about a VAV system and, I'll review M and V reports, let's say, and they'll show a trend of the VFD modulating. And, and the question always is, well, is it modulating enough? Because you know, there was definitely a, a profile that was simulated, projected, forecasted of how how often this thing would operate at 40% speed and how often it would be maxed out. So just to say that it's capable of going up and down in response to static pressure you know, it doesn't really come full circle to meeting that. Did we meet the, the goals of this particular unit, system, building? And it just expands from there. 
So when does the contractor get to see what the commissioning plan is? When do they get to see it? Yeah. Do they see it as they're building the job so they understand this is what standard they're going to be held to? Well, and it depends. So that's a great question, Clayton. So just think about what we see out in the industry typically. A commissioning spec can range all the way from one line, commission the project. I mean, and I'm, that's not a joke. It is a joke, but it, I mean, that's a that's a direct. That's quote. reality, from a, right? From a pretty big project, you know, four million bu- four million bucks, and all the way to the commissioning agent shall prepare and document, you know, pre-functional testing documents, you know, inclusive of the tab reports and blah blah blah. Pre- prepare and design functional tests with the uh, all that. So, you know, in terms of when do I let the contractor know? As early as possible. You know, I, I, I really only a couple times have been involved at the end, and it was early on when people said, can you commission this? And I, you know, kicked up some dust and said, you guys are way late, but it's better than nothing, I guess. And I'm not even sure that's true now. But you start to talk about the, here's what we want for pre-functional tests which is basically the startup list that nick was talking about yeah we can ramp the drive up and down but is it working as a system we don't know that and then the trickle down is okay we need to go to the bms contractor and they need to add you know 750 some logs uh trend logs and we need to get some data loggers out there and people look at you like you've gone out of your mind because we really functionally test systems so now on a project when we're the commissioning entities it's early on as soon as we're involved you know there will be you know complete commissioning functional test pre-functional test and functional tests of these systems that will include you know the the fundamental elements of you know dynamic system system testing based on uh, variable load you know all those kinds of things and the earlier they know it, the less pushback there is. Because if you go in the last you know, month of the project, all that engineer is focused on is getting done and getting his retention. You know, right. And, and there's still a significant amount of work to do. And I get, I suppose, a lot of the functionality that's required for performance is part of the specification that the contractors, you know, have. But... I assume being transparent as soon as possible helps a lot for just how smooth the project goes. You don't want to wait until the end to find out you could have made a change three months ago or been prepared for it. And That's right. Not had a problem. And now you got to go back and change 30 of them or 500 of them. I don't know, as opposed to 10, one, depending on how you're doing everything. Oh, there's definitely the, uh, the propagation of errors when it comes to, commissioning and you talk about the commissioning plan Clayton you know in, in the federal ESPC market it's a scheduled deliverable a commissioning plan not as rigorously held to as as other documents right but it's still required but it is interesting that it doesn't seem like they're as detailed as they should be at that point which then if there's an expectation that something else is going to be occurring that can cause problems or one of the big things I've worked on with in my work with uh, 
the energy service companies and getting involved early with the M&V side of things is that, you know, very early on, you know, there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's redundant effort sometimes for the commissioning folks and the M&V folks unless they're communicating. And there's so much that is done during commissioning that's part of that uh, dimension of what the measurement and verification folks do before they can demonstrate savings have occurred, right? They need to be able to say, yeah, this, this looks like it's going to work, you know, like we thought it was going to work, which you know, is heavily dependent on the commissioning results. So, you know, too many times that I'm brought in and laid on projects, it's, you know, here's a bunch of data. This is how it's operating. You know, we're in our 30 day proof of performance period and the government's going to accept the project. And then we start year one and we go and we look at the trend data and, you know, it's, it's start, it can be startling. Sometimes it makes you doubt yourself. Like, did I pick up the right data here? Cause this, you know, the, you know, things aren't scheduled set point right. is what they were, you know, during baselining. So yep. can't derive much savings that way. Yeah. No, talk about making friends, you know? Yeah. Another thing I noticed a lot of in the 2005 guideline talks a lot about training. When does that come into play and, and how, how does that come into play and be effective in the commissioning process? Well, to, to do it right, especially with complex mechanical systems, you know, there, there is typically an assumption that uh, somehow the maintenance or operation personnel have a skill set or a level of familiarity with what may be entirely new equipment. And you really have to walk the contractors back and say, here's, here's what will happen. We're going to educate these people about a new piece of equipment that they've never seen before, whether it's a mag bearing chiller or a chilled beam or whatever it is. And so what we need to do is, first of all, slow ourselves down and make sure that we're talking at a fundamental level all the way up to, well, that's going to take a, that'll take a whole day. Okay. It'll take a whole day. And by the way, we want to video it so that these guys have a record of the training and can refer to it if they need to. Otherwise, you'll be back out, out here doing this training, you know, once a month for the whole of the summer, in addition to providing them online materials, you know, that they can refer to. So, that, you know, if we provide, when we write specs for clients, and they want to you know, get a commissioning agent, either us or somebody else, we provide them a pretty comprehensive spec that says the training shall consist of you know, this. And this will be the, the, the leave behind hard copy, magnetic copy, and media copy of the video of the training because these guys will forget. And I hope in most cases, it takes a couple, three years for that stuff to collect dust because in the short term, I know we've turned over buildings that the maintenance and operations teams were not entirely comfortable with the technology, but really the, the quality of the training helped them get up to speed and understand how the building operated and how to use it in a pretty short period of time. So saying that, Mark, is it better to get involved with the training training plan during the construction phase as you know new equipment and systems are being put in absolutely 
but you know that said, I wouldn't advocate training people until we're you know within the the turnover period is close to the end, so that you can get everybody in the same mindset. This is you know a week and a half of training, and everything gets trained at one time versus an ad hoc training program. Today we'll train you on the new process air compressors, and tomorrow we'll train you, or next week we'll train you on the especially gas systems, and then the week after that we'll train you on the vacuum pumps. It's better just to get people in the education mindset, and we're going to have a week of training, and just do it. Yeah, and I imagine, uh, like most, obviously, facility managers, they deal with the whole facility. They don't deal with one singular piece of that, so they should learn how to use the system as they would, uh, as it is a system, not just uh, one aspect of it. So, from the top all the way to the bottom. That makes sense. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about the relationship between the commissioning agent, agents, agency, and the owner? and why, why it's essential to have a good one from start to finish of a project? Well, I see a lot of the results when there's not that relationship. So I think Mark has probably seen more positive uh, examples of that. Well, I think the relationship between the commissioning agent and uh, owner is entirely a, a trust relationship where, you know, I always tell them, here's the bottom line. You don't lie to me, I'll do the same. And if I have an opinion, if it's not fact-based, I'll keep it to myself. If I have a fact-based opinion, I'll provide it. At At the same time, if I don't have the technical wherewithal to provide an opinion, I'll tell you that too. Because we see many, many cases where entities purport to be commissioning agents and don't have the technical wherewithal to be opining on really anything, let alone directing a contractor. The requirements have gotten so lax that if you have a a commissioning entity that has one good solid commissioning agent on board, then you can send up a, send up a little army of uh, individuals out to go and collect data and uh, look at things and, maybe they they have no idea what they're looking at so that trust relationship is really essential it's hard to develop that unless you start early on and we've commissioned jobs some pretty big jobs that uh, we came in late on and maybe we shouldn't have because you know we were picked from uh, google search which is that's great but i think you establish the the trust relationship by going through the pre-design work and the design work and the installation observations and checklists, not just walking at the last minute like you're the sheriff with a white hat on and we're going to tell people how this job needs to run. So I, I think ASHRAE was in, they, they showed a lot of insight in terms of how they designed this process because the whole thing is uh, constructed around that long-term relationship and understanding of, you know, the three-legged stool. You have the commissioning agent, you have the owner, and then you have the building. And, you know, the building is a product of the CA and the owner relationship. 
Well, yeah, and I would imagine the, the relationship, like you said, even if you're brought in you know, after the fact, quote unquote, you're still acting as a commissioning authority, as the owner's representative uh, in some way. So, Oh, absolutely. That would be a critical uh, mistake, I guess, would be to not have trust in your commissioning authority. Well, but it's like anything else, Nick. You're, you're going to go buy a house from somebody. That's a big investment. But you're going to pick a realtor out of a, you know, based on what. And you're supposed to be able to trust them. But, hey, not all realtors are uh, necessarily scrupulous or honest. And, I mean, maybe that's a bad example. But it's very difficult to go out and find qualified commissioning agents and it's difficult also for even qualified commissioning agents to come in and do a creditable job when they're brought in at the last minute. How often do you see, I'm just curious about this, Mark, an owner having a a commissioning firm that they work with and do multiple projects with, or does it only seem to be you only get a commissioning authority or firm when you have the really large projects? So we see quite a few large property owners and uh, developers have commissioning agents that they work with. And that's a good thing. I would think so. It, you know, where they, they get consistent results. They, but, so here's the downside of it. That uh, also says, okay, let's just say you're a large hotel chain that has property all over the U.S. We were um, subject matter experts on a hotel chain where a cooling coil broke on Christmas Eve and the chill water circulation pump stayed on and the outside air damper stayed on. And it was a fully commissioned project and we were called in to figure out who did what or didn't do what. And, you know, this goes back to controls 101. The the freeze stat was wired to the controller, not directly in series with the motor starter and the power to the damper actuators. And the commissioning agent had commissioned the whole system. And they ended up paying a big chunk of the damages. I could understand that. But at the same time, that said, it was a commissioning firm that the the owners had faith in, but it all comes down to the individual performance of the on-site commissioning agent. Yeah, and I can imagine it takes a, a long time to, like anything, build trust, but it's pretty easy to uh, lose it with one error, especially of that magnitude. So. I was going to say the same thing, Clayton. Absolutely. <laughs> we should start kind of wrapping up this episode. We're hitting our time limit, if you want to call it that. I don't know if there's any closing points. I know we still have a, had a little bit more maybe we wanted to talk about, but we kind of covered out of sequence. Anything you guys else want to keep talking about or rolling on? I would, I would have another question for Mark, if I may. Yeah. Because I'm kind of, you, you, have, you know, I see, like I said, the, the back end of this, so I don't right. really necessarily see the mechanics of how it all comes together, but I am curious about what seems to be a reluctance to involve commissioning to the level it needs to be involved. And you know, you're seeing obviously a lot of people include it, but just maybe not to the rigor it needs to be included. So 
when we talk about these different phases, right? Pre-design, design, construction, and then ultimately occupancy and operations, you know, do owners ever want to know, well, how much is commissioning going to cost me for each of these phases? Like as a percent of, you know, capital costs? I haven't never been asked that question. That's a good sign. Yeah, that, I, I guess it's a good sign. And, you know, who typically provides the most pushback is the A&E firms. That when when you know they're the they're the at the um, that's not necessary you know mm-hmm. uh, message that they provide the owner. You really don't need that. We, you, you know you don't need to have those guys. At the same time, though, typically commissioning agents are pretty experienced in the construction field, and I I subscribe to the adage that the very worst engineer on the planet can take the designs of the best engineer on the planet and improve them. I guarantee it. You give them some time and let them think about it, and that cold eye review will inevitably, maybe not day and night change, but will result in changes to the design. So I think you know there's a lot of value, and again, it helps to foster a trust relationship. And in the best projects, there's a trust relationship across the board with the building owner and with the engineering firm. I got to imagine there's a, a- technical disconnect i guess too i mean as a as a building owner if you do any kind of capital improvement with any mechanical equipment yeah you know let's talk about like say an air handler for instance did new controls on an air handler once you turn it on it'll probably blow air it will probably be cold air or warm air when it's needed but that doesn't mean that the the actuators are you know bouncing up and down trying to maintain the set point the fan could be you know ramping up and down as well. And I guess those are those are issues that you wouldn't know if you're looking at it from, I don't know, 10,000 feet, say, but over the years, it'll also cause a, be very expensive. You're going to be replacing a lot of actuators and equipment and could cause more issues. So I don't know what I'm trying to say is, I guess it seems like Sometimes people don't feel they need commissioning because, well, it started and it works, but it doesn't mean it's operating properly. And there's obviously a lot of improvements that could be made. Oh, yeah. It's the whole short-term, long-term, or can be looked at like that too, where if your goals are just on the horizon, then maybe you're focusing on the, does it blow cold air? And am I getting any complaints? But as we touched upon earlier with, you know, resources cost money. And, uh, you know, nowadays there's an even bigger push to, you know, reduce consumption of resources, no matter, you know, a lot of times what the economics are, but you still have to demonstrate that you're doing that. Yeah, I think, guys, that's a good point to, to end the episode on is commissioning is value added and not just cost added. And with that being said, thanks for tuning in. Uh, our next episode, we'll be discussing virtual commissioning. So stay tuned. Have a great day.